Welcome to another podcast from Cranfield, Colour Like No Other, where today we're delighted to spend time with eminent American artist Laura Arango Bayer. Let's go and have a chat. Good morning, Laura. How are you? Good morning. Oh, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, can't complain. And of course, I've got it easy. It's three in the afternoon here, whereas for you, you've had to get up on our behalf. So, very oh, you're good. Oh, of course. Now I'm usually up uh, on Mondays at like five in the morning because I've oh, got. Really? Why on earth uh, do you do that? <laughs> to go to the gym. <laughs> oh, I, that's. Oh, I have uh, great respect for you. Uh, that's, and and is that for pleasure or is it because it's part of a a lifelong desire to be as fit as possible and uh yeah a little bit of both i'd say i feel like um it helps me uh, get all my energy out because when i'm in the studio uh <laughs> i can be a little antsy okay. so getting all that energy out is is the best thing for me to be able to sit and paint quietly <laughs> well you're talking to somebody who last ran knowingly in about 1987 to catch a bus i don't think i've ever run <laughs> since then so tremendous oh it's fine uh, i hate running <laughs> oh, oh, right. i hate running yeah i go to the gym to do weightlifting so it's, oh, right, okay. <laughs> it's a little well, more even, like i'm gonna stand here yeah, yeah. Even, even that uh, even more respect that's absolutely fantastic but uh great well it's lovely to to see you and tremendously <laughs> grateful for you uh, taking part in our podcast um, if it's okay with you, we'll kick off and um, with a nice uh, open agenda just to chat. I've got quite a few things I'm looking forward to discovering, but uh, if you're okay, we'll we'll kick off. And it's a real delight to see again my friend Laura, who last time the tables were turned and you were interviewing me. So it's a different feeling That's today. Right. <laughs> and uh, first of all, starting... Yeah. With your magnificent surname, which I'm going to pronounce wrong, Laura Arango Bayer. How is it actually pronounced? Mm -hmm. Is that good enough? Oh, you you pronounce it perfectly. Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and and your bios speak of um, your Colombian heritage. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's a Spanish name. Is it from the Basque region of Spain, or at least the Arango part? Bayer is probably is. Swiss, is it, yes. or something like that? So, so what's your? Uh, it's Austrian. Austrian, okay. And have you travelled yes. back yeah. to see your Spanish and Austrian uh, ancestry and homelands? I have, yeah. Um, I actually have family in Vienna, and when I went to Austria, I visited where my great grandfather was from. Because what happened was he lived in Austria and then after World War One, he moved to Colombia and he never went back. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm here. Um, but I haven't visited the Spanish Basque side yet. So it's a <laughs> we'll magnificent part, magnificent part of the world and so much art for you to see there. So you, you must make sure you do that at some stage. So your, that's your, your family name. And is it a name which has been associated with art before you? Or are you the first generation of Arango Bayers that have gone into to art? Well, as far as I know, I'm the only Laura Arango Bayer. <laughs> because um, when I, when I make, like, you know how on Instagram you have to have a handle, like a, a name, a username. Um, I was the only Laura Arango Bayer, which makes me feel a little unique. <laughs> 
That's lovely. There was a, a yeah. British comedian some years ago. He was completely nutty and his name was Spike Milligan. And he, used to, he came up with songs that he wished he'd written. He never did get around to writing them. But one of them, he wanted to write a song called I'm the only Danish Scotsman in the Irish Fusiliers. So it would have been a completely balmy song if he had. So that's not dissimilar to you. You've got all these different uh, influences in your life uh, uh, from mm -hmm. your ancestry. So, but tell me, what age were you when you felt there's a strong desire to express myself in art? Was it something that you developed only later in life through college or was it, was it always there? Oh, it was always there. Um, I'd say I started really getting into sketching for fun when I was maybe like 13, 12, uh, maybe even 11 actually, but it didn't really hit me more until I was in high school because I, I went to an arts high school um, and it was called Design and Architecture Senior High. And in order to get into it, you had to apply. You had to put in a portfolio and you had to go through an interview process. And um, so there, it was actually more based on design. We did have to take painting and, and drawing, but um, there it was mostly, I did architecture for three years alongside painting. And I was the only weird person who brought oil paint <laughs> because since we had to take art history uh, in our sophomore year, I became obsessed with the old masters at that point. And I had heard about a school in Italy and I was like, you know what, maybe I'll do this after. Um, I had a little crisis first <laughs> where I studied psychology for two years in college. And then I decided this is depressing. I'm going to be a painter. <laughs> wow. That's a brave decision then to move. Having invested two years, you really were convinced that you knew it was right for you to, to work, walk away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So people I'm, I'm sort of slowly revealing to people that don't know of you more and more about you. So we've discovered uh, you, you yourself uh, stumbled across art from a young age and then you went, uh, didn't study it first of all, but then felt no, you need to, to follow art. Where is all this happening? Because we ought to fast forward today. You're a well-known, uh, most accomplished artist and um, whilst people are looking at the or listening to the podcast they may want to go online and as you say you only need to google laura arango bayer and bayer spelled b-a-i-e-r you're not going to find any others and you're going to see your fantastic work and we're going to touch on your fascination with uh, the old masters later but where is this happening where where as a seven-year-old laura or a 13-year-old laura or indeed as a high school or a student where is this happening so the uh, the sketching obsession started, actually, I was visiting my family in Colombia. So I at the time I was living in Miami, but it was the summertime when I I, I would visit my family every year in Colombia. Um, and actually, now that I remember before that, um, my grandma has my paternal grandmother. She has a uh, a cousin and her cousin is a painter uh, in Colombia. She's a pretty like a pretty accomplished painter she's an abstract expressionist so it's very different from what I do but I remember very vividly sneaking into her studio in her basement and it was just this mess of canvas and paint and this sketching desk and I remember just thinking as maybe I think maybe I was four or five I was like I want this <laughs> there is something special but about it wasn't it, until later it? that I realized yeah. yeah it has this 
there was just a feeling in there that I, I really wanted to follow in my life. Um, so then, you know, all of this happened here in Miami where I attended that art school and then that led me to the school in Italy. So it's been a <laughs> traveling experience. And do people, do your teachers back in your, uh, those formative years when you were at high school in Miami, have you ever been back to say, thank you, this is you, uh, this is what you've achieved? Because to my shame, uh, you know, sadly, I, I've nowhere achieved any uh, um, art uh, fame. Certainly none's deserved for anything I've ever painted, but I do enjoy painting it. And I'm grateful to, I can remember there was a Mr. Joachim, a Mr. Cook and a Mr. Jackson. And I, I never went back to say, do you know, whilst I didn't make my career as a painter, I have as a paint maker, as you know, and I, to my shame, mm -hmm. I never went back. Have you ever been back or let them know what you're doing now? I have, um, but if anything, it's it's a bit of a, a funny experience because um, the school itself wasn't too encouraging about becoming an artist. It was more so about um, the prestige of going to like a big college instead of um, following your dream. Mm -hmm. So if anything, I've gone back to tell them, hey, I'm actually surviving as a painter and I'm really happy about it because all of you didn't believe in me. Uh, Wasn't that fascinating? Because <laughs> I had a lot of teachers who really, yeah, it is. And I actually have, I do have one art teacher to thank and that's my elementary school art teacher <laughs> yeah. because she never gave up on me. She always like, she always saw that potential in me. Um, but after that, I feel like all the art teachers I've ever had have been disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> and probably they would be jealous that you actually have made uh, a, a magnificent career and, and for they, that they felt that it was not going to be um, uh, possible. I suppose you can understand mm -hmm. it, though, from a teacher's point of view, the boys' school. I went to Beach and Cliff Boys' School in Bath, and for the hapless teacher looking out at 30 lads trying to narrow the gap between 30 boys and Rembrandt, it was always going to be a, a tough task. But um, I oh, mentioned yeah. Rembrandt because you have a particular fascination today with Rembrandt. And um, you're, you have several hats. Uh, one of them is as an independent painter in your own right, uh, also as a producer of podcasts, which we'll talk about later and involved um, with uh, online, the, the faso.com website. So we'll chat about that later, but this is very much about you and your fascination with Rembrandt. How on earth did that come about? Um, and you've taken it to quite a, a lengthy degree, if you like, haven't you, that you are recreating uh, with original materials and styles, and indeed you're looking at your own motivation, the, the limited palette that you use when other people were collecting uh, Smurfs or toy cars or key rings or something, you were collecting copies of, of Rembrandt. What, what was going on and what uh, kicked that off? So um, Rembrandt is extremely notorious. He's, he's so famous. And when I studied art history, um, he was definitely one of the big ones that I really admired, aside from him having so much work available to study from, from the earliest to the latest. So you see his progression. So for me, it's almost like the way that, um, that you see his work laid out, you see the, the possible progression in your own work. Like you can see yourself reflected in it because 
at first he was very, very tight with his paint quality. He was very, it was almost like he felt like he had endless time as we feel when we're young. And then as he aged, it becomes yeah. more fervent and more expressive, but still maintains the form. Um, so I'd say I became obsessed with the old masters for that reason. Also because there was more feeling in their work, you know, like not just Rembrandt. It was also Van Dyck. It was Rubens, Titian. They all had these insane, gigantic paintings with a story. And I remember thinking, oh, why don't we do that anymore? You know, um, so I've been chasing that. And so I've been working on 60 master copies. And I think maybe around 30 of those are Rembrandt's <laughs> that I'm going to be copying. Yeah. It's interesting you and said, the. Uh, uh -huh. No, it is. It, it's interesting you said that he, um, Rembrandt, as he grew older, um, became more impassioned, almost. You see it in his work. He also became increasingly realistic about himself and perhaps his more fascinating paintings, his self-portraits, you see warts and, and lines and crow's feet and what have you. And, and, yes. But I interrupted then, you were telling us, um, so he, you have taken him and Titian and others and, and you're starting again from simple canvases and you're putting down a, a, a coloured wash of some description and then you're mm -hmm take it away and and what about the the choice of of um paints or the, the number of paints that you're putting on your palette so when i first started learning how to paint we worked with a version of the zorn palette which is a very limited palette it's only four pigments originally it is white yellow red and black um obviously it's a little hard to to say exactly which pigments specifically he used since we don't know what I mean I don't know what was in them but I personally used titanium white uh vermilion or cad red um yellow ochre or yellow brown and either mars black or ivory black but I feel like mars black is a little bit warmer than ivory ivory can be a little bit too strong um and the reason one of the reasons I was taught with those pigments, uh, and it was a little bit extended though, because it included romber and red umber, and um, I think, yeah, just a couple others, just to simplify. The reason we were taught that way is because it prevented us as students from jumping all over your palette and, and trying everything and not getting anywhere. So it was more of a logical way of learning. And then I, you know, brought it down to just those four. Um, and it's because it creates a more harmonious relationship within the palette. Because, um, I mean, there are theories about having multiple reds, but uh, I find that keeping certain things unified and just having those four pigments is more than enough to vary all the different colors. And has it become more than simply an exercise to try and recreate, to work, work out how they did it. Is it beginning to affect you or do you think it will affect your future painting? I ought to say, if people want to look at your this transition on your excellent Instagram, they just need to go to your uh, Laura Arango Bayer Instagram and you very kindly and generously allowed people into the process and you can see exactly what you're doing. And So do you think is life after this uh, um, return to the master is going to be different? I think just from doing the the few that I've done so far, I've, I've already 
understood a lot more because it's one thing to learn from from life when you're painting from you know a person standing in front of you um you have to find your own problem solving and sometimes that can be a little bit challenging if you don't really know or if you haven't found the right way to describe something and i find that by copying the old masters they've already given you the way that they solve these problems so the way that they describe an eye, the way that they describe a nose, lips, it tends to be pretty similar amongst them. But I find that after this, I will have a much better toolkit of how can I describe this eye in a way that isn't literal. It's more expressive, but I'm also maintaining the integrity of the anatomy and the colors. That's interesting. And and you use the word describe there. Can I quote something for you? This is a little quiz yeah. now. I want you to tell me what well-known, eminent American uh, artist painter said this. As a painter, you'll never stop learning how to improve, how to describe things a little better or a little bit different. Paint can do what words cannot. No words exist in painting. Painting just is. Who wrote that? Oh my gosh. Shall I help I you? Kind of, <laughs> I kind you. of want to say. It's me? you. Yeah. No. It's one of your, it's a, it's a quote from an article that you wrote. And I, I, it's interesting. You, it, is, it is very much you speaking because you used the same terminology then mm -hmm. when you said, this is how we describe things a little bit better. And you almost used the same term then. So how modest you yeah. are. <laughs> Um, so it is a description. So, so it's an extension of yourself in a way when you're you're painting. And this is, in a sense, quite a personal question. And you can tell us and all the listeners to to shove off. But this is a big commitment for you. Looking at putting weeks, perhaps months of your uh, months of your life aside for this project. Will you uh, the, the work themselves? You'll you'll simply in a, a cabinet as part of life's experience will you sell them or do you do you see it as such an important investment that however long it takes it's worth it because it's going to inform the future yes 100 percent um painting is a selfish act <laughs> it is extremely selfish um i sometimes feel like i'm stealing time and i enjoy every minute of it um and in the end yeah, I will be selling them just because, you know, I also find that it's not just learning and learning experience for me. It's also a learning experience for someone who buys it because um, they if they can't see the real painting, you know, they can't see the, the original Rembrandt or the original Waterhouse, they'll have my version of it. And it has my own touch, but also it I try my best to be as to, you know, to keep the integrity of their brushstrokes and how they've described it. So there is some learning aspect that people can gain from it. And actually I haven't painted a couple of master copies in the past and they've, they've already been purchased by some of my followers who are also art students. So I feel like they gained something from it. it it's really lovely that you're using this as clearly you're very passionate about it. You enjoy it immensely people are wanting to have and buy your uh, the work you're producing and you've avoided the not, I suppose trap is an unkind phrase the necessity that many artists that we know and because we manufacture both printmaking inks and paints we spend our life with artists some of them 
are cross with themselves or cross with an agent or cross with a gallery because they produced a particular style once and mm -hmm. it may have been um, boats in a harbour or mountain tops or something. They never want to paint another boat in a harbour, but the gallery keeps saying, you know, you've got to do that. So what's lovely about your work, and again, it is very diverse. So go and look at Laura Arango Bayer website and you'll see and get on your newsletter and you'll see your, your work is very varied, but you're clearly dictating the direction you're, you're taking. Tell me a bit about projects that you might have or indeed during COVID, did it give you any time to try something entirely different? I'm reluctant to give an example, um, but did you try any um, impressionist work or did you think, well, I'm going to go all Salvador Dali today or something? Or uh, did, did, did that not really appeal for you? Was that not, not on the cards? Um, I did make a painting and this was just before COVID. I believe it was December, the December before lockdown. Um, I did make a very colorful <laughs> painting um, and I don't have it with me because uh, a collector of mine bought it, which I didn't expect <laughs> because it's totally different from from my master copy and and, and uh, more old master style work. It's it was definitely very modern, <laughs> which I, I don't think I will revisit just because it, it's not I don't feel like it's entirely authentic to me. It was yeah. more so experimental. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did dabble in <laughs> other styles, but I ended up settling for the old masters. Yeah, back to you. That's good. The, the, there's a, um, a very eminent uh, British painter called Edward Sutcliffe, and he wrote a lovely article, uh, a very moving article in a way, close to the start of the pandemic when for the duration, he looked at his work and he's, he does quite quirky photorealism uh, work. And in good times, in fact, I always love it, but you know, in, in good times, people love to own it because it is so unique. Uh, but he said of his work, he asked himself a question in those opening weeks and months, is my work simply a long way to tell a thin joke? And he said, the world doesn't seem to be laughing very much at the moment. So he actually, for the duration of lockdown, he tried a very different, more bold uh, style, mm. just as, as something different. And I, I think that there was for a period um, time when artists found they simply got no reward from their usual work. In fact, many artists sort of found they had a terrible block that they just couldn't produce anything at all. But that you, you were okay, you just kept producing. I suppose you had your project, didn't you? you it wasn't that you were producing to the uh, you weren't watching the clock thinking well I need to get another one out this week because it was a absorbing project did that keep you motivated throughout um I'd say well during the actual lockdown at the beginning I was still attending a school in New York so I was busy anyway with with classwork and I actually took that time to focus on anatomy a lot. Um, so I did a lot of sketches of anatomy and I feel like that helped me pass the time. And, and it also improved in the long run. I saw a much greater improvement in my work. Um, so I feel like, yeah, I, I gained a lot from, you know, sitting around and, and letting myself explore and, and sketch. And you were fortunate, your time in, in Florence, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, um, 
it was before the pandemic, so you were able to travel and enjoy it. Was that again another turning point in your life? Did you um, did you wish to move permanently to Italy, or, or how did you get on with that experience? Oh, I loved it. I loved living in Italy. Um, it didn't. It wasn't. I, it didn't feel like home for me. In the end, uh, I still absolutely love the experience, and I, I often miss being there. And yeah, it is very fortunate that I was there before the pandemic because right now, um, the head teacher Michael John Angel, who I absolutely love, he isn't teaching in person classes. So I feel like I was able to to experience, you know, having him in the same room and learning directly from him versus the students today who unfortunately have them over zoom mm. um fortunately and unfortunately because i mean it is what it is but i feel like yes my experience there was not tainted at all by the pandemic and i i miss it yeah the the, the zoom is adequate in a way but it's not the same and, and a lot of people students have really they've had life on half pay really in recent years haven't they because they can't meet together um i mentioned that we make uh, inks and paints printmakers they love meeting together and if they'll have a conference and they will travel all over the world and many printmakers are fascinated in the very mechanics of producing a print and they'll gather around a little press at a, at a show and talk about whether they should increase the pressure and whether they should damp the paper and whether they should make the ink softer some of them, I'm sure they never get around ever to doing any any printing because they are so fascinated in the process. But as I say, they're very social animals. Painters less so. You don't have the reason to meet with others. And I wonder if it can be quite a lonely experience. And people don't uh, perhaps have the same means to interact with one another. So it's probably when you're being educated is the, the first and last time that you're in a busy big studio with 15 other um, um, painters. Now, here in the UK, um, this is where my experience of art education is, and perhaps on mainland Europe as well. But what is the state of, of art education in the US at the moment? Is it well funded? Is it good heart in good heart? Do lots of students want to go into uh, art? Or is it has it taken a kicking? Well, in my opinion, it depends on I can't really speak for the official college system because I feel like here it is absolutely, in my opinion, it's a bit of a failure <laughs> because um, they're not, their focus isn't what people think it is. And in art colleges, their focus is more on the, on trying to be, or create something that's never existed or trying to be, you know, the novelty of something instead of officially teaching someone the, the base. So in that sense, um, there are a lot of atelier style schools and those are schools kind of like uh, in the style of the late 1800s, which is academic style, uh, where you have the model and you copy from casts and you learn the very, very basics. Now there are a bunch of those popping up all over the United States. So I'd say it depends on what you want. If you're trying to go for the novelty, modern, contemporary style, then I i mean, college is fine. Yeah. I would just be more wary of how expensive it is because here, one year in college is roughly $60,000. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That that is interesting. Your your comment that um, the courses, in a sense, are almost two thousand miles wide, but only one inch deep in terms of mm -hmm. the real skills that the, the so many media. I suppose we, as a manufacturer of traditional colours, we're always nervous when yet another discipline is added to the course. We're not disrespectful <laughs> of digital or anything else, but the wider it gets, you know, people can't spend time. And it is interesting, we, we have a, a helpline, uh, hello at crownfield-colours.co.uk and people will, uh, often come to us with um, challenges which had they been properly taught they wouldn't have faced and often the we have a lovely email exchange going back and forth and they often end with I'm going to tell my professor because they they feel that they should have um, been, been better taught back in the day but anyway let's back yeah. to to your experience now so you're you're producing your own work but you're also finding time you're a producer of the um, Bold Brush podcasts. Uh, yep. Who are they aimed at? And, and uh, are you enjoying that? And, and indeed, were you in broadcasting or podcasts before? Or, or what's the, the history of that? Um, I have never done a podcast before. Okay. <laughs> Ever. Um, I, so it started more so as a, I started working with Bold Brush in July of last year. And um, my now manager had reached out to me because he was considering starting a podcast with Bold Brush. So he he and I kind of we clicked and he was like, you know what? I think you would be a great host. So let's try it out. And I said, OK, let's let's do it. Um, and it's been extremely fun uh, and, you know, getting to know new people like, you know, meeting you and, and meeting other artists. Um, I think that's the, the part that I get the most out of. But also uh, the podcast itself is more so to give artists tips, not just painting tips. And, and like we discussed on our episode, uh, tips on how to, you know, figure out which paints to use and how they function and, and all of the really important details of how paint is made. Uh, but also the marketing aspect, because we find that one of the things that a lot of art schools if not all the art schools don't teach is how to survive and not just survive. Cause I feel like survive is like the minimum, how to live off of your work as a painter in the modern day. And so that's part of your role, encouraging, uh, teaching, and I suppose in a sense, giving community for artists. We were saying that mm -hmm. they, you know, they can, it can be quite a lonely, uh, existence. So you've got then an, you're also involved because I know that your work you sell uh, through the website faso.com. Mm -hmm. Tell us, tell a, a, an Englishman with a small brain uh, actually what Faso is, how it works, and how people engage with it, both the customers and indeed the is it a membership organization or artists come to you to the to Faso? Tell us about Faso. So FASO is actually, um, it's an art marketing platform. So it's specifically made for artists to make their website. So you pay a, a one-year fee, for example, as if you were doing it with Wix or Squarespace or any other website creating platform, except that FASO is unique and that uh, it's already made for painters. So it's easier to just put the layout and it already has a portfolio link and it's easy to put all your images on there and you can buy directly from the website, which I think is so convenient because in, in those other websites, in order to do that, you know, it has to be like, it almost feels like a product page instead of an actual like 
portfolio page. Um, and they also have a, a list of collectors that they share the artist's work to. So every month um, they'll have, I'm guessing, a newsletter that goes out to their collectors and it dis displays all the new work that other painters have made who just joined FASO. So it builds a community in there. And they also have this thing that I'm going to start using, which is um, a print like to make prints of your work, they're starting to include that on the website. And I'm really excited about it <laughs> because people can just order prints directly from there um, instead of having to order them from a different website. So that's also something that that's really cool about it. <laughs> that's fantastic. So you're both benefiting from the organization whilst also contributing to it. With the... Yes. Well, look, we're nearly out of our half hour slot with you, but I have a few more questions to go, if I yeah. might, if you don't have to dash away. And it's oh, a, quick, <laughs> a quick fire round of favorites. So first Ooh. of all, favorite color. Oh, that's a tough one. Black. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, yeah, we're confident. Um, favorite from history, favorite painter. An even harder one. Uh, living or dead? <laughs> uh, either. Either. Anyway, we'll have Ooh. one of each. We'll stretch it for you. One of each. Okay. Okay, so I'd say a dead painter. Oh my god, that's a tough one. I have so many, but a dead one. Oh, I'm gonna take a risk. Uh, Waterhouse. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's the that's the dead painter sorted. Who's the living painter? Oh, uh, I'd say the living painter is Adnerdrum. <laughs> okay. So your final question is favorite song on Spotify at the moment. Oh, that's even harder. <laughs> That's, on why, Spotify right now. that's why I didn't give you any warning. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I have to think about that for one second. Um, well, I have a favorite playlist right now and it's, uh, it's called Northern Healing and it's all just Viking music. <laughs> wow. Well, in which case you've given us a lot of homework. So we need to go and listen to Northern Healing on Spotify. Yes. We need to sign up, if we're not already, to the Laura Arango Bayer newsletter, which is found on your mm -hmm. website, which is www.laura. In fact, you tell us what it is. Oh. Website. It's www.lauraarangobayer. That's B-A-I-E-R.com. <laughs> follow you on Instagram as well. And indeed, uh, follow your uh, great success into the future. We do love your work here at Cranfield. Yeah. So grateful for the chance to have spoken with you. And um, indeed, wish you every success for the future. And know we'll keep in touch, not least because we, along with very many others, have signed up to your newsletter, Laura. So we will definitely keep Thank in touch. Thank you. Thanks yes, so much we will again. Definitely keep in touch. <laughs> really lovely to have spoken to you. And thank you to our listeners as well for joining us on another edition of a Cranfield podcast, Colour Like No Other. It's been great to have you.